very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, give yourself the gift of truth. Just click on the subscribe button on our website and get your login immediately. And if you haven't listened to Sanitas yet, I highly recommend that you do. It's your life. Take control. Well, folks, as you know, I receive books probably on a daily basis, which makes me very fortunate because my library continues to grow all the time. But recently, I received a book that somebody from Norway sent me. And let me just read you a very, very short letter. It says, Dear Mel, Atlantis Rising is a great tapestry of history and spirit. This book is my favorite. Every time I read it, I get more and deeper understanding out of it. It's like a course in consciousness. I give this transmission to you as a thank you so much for you and your very important work. Be blessed, Anik from Norway. And after that, she sent me more. And tonight's guest also sent me more, but I'm referring to the book Atlantis Rising, The Struggle of Darkness and Light. And to begin, let me just say this. The lost continent of Atlantis has existed in the collective consciousness of humankind for eons, contemplated as early as 355 BC by Plato and echoing in the modern mind. Tonight, we discuss compelling and startling insights into this lost culture and the lessons it holds for us as both a high civilization and a metaphor for our current world situation. Earth changes, growing extraterrestrial phenomena and government conspiracy theories. Only by embracing and recognizing what Atlantis can teach us can we expect to heal and uplift our own increasingly threatened civilization. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Patricia Corey, an author, metaphysician. Patricia Corey is a renowned teacher and spiritual guide to the sacred sites of the Earth. For more than 30 years, she has studied mysticism, philosophy, ancient civilizations, metaphysical healing, and spirituality. She has been recognized as a gifted shaman by indigenous spirit teachers of the Tibetan, Mayan, and Peruvian traditions. She established Soul Soul SoulQuest Journeys in 1996, guiding travelers through sacred sites in Nepal, Tibet, Asia, Mexico, Egypt, Europe, and Peru, and to the crop circles of England. Patricia is the author of The Syrian Revelations and host of Beyond the Matrix at bbsradio.com. 
Her new book, Where Pharaohs Dwell, explores secrets of immortality through the magic of ancient Egypt. And she also has many, many more books. Her website, patriciacorey.com. And directly from somewhere in Italy, where it's very, very late right now, I'm delighted to welcome Patricia Corey. Hello, Patricia. Welcome to Veritas. Hi, Mel. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much. Oh, the honor is mine. And, you know, as I said, it's it's very interesting that I got that letter. And since I cannot read a book unless I have to match it with an interview, when I saw what she had to say, I said, well, what if I contact Patricia and we just conduct an interview and dive into it? So we did. It's amazing. I, I love the fact that that happened that way. And I want to say that when she said, every time I read it, I get more out of it. I th- This is a recurring theme with this book. I get letters all the time from from readers who say they've read it. They're on their seventh reading of the book. <laughs> I, I find that quite amazing. Very, but very I, interesting. I, yeah. I, I just, especially out of all my books, especially that one. And I've come to believe that there are many different layers of information in the book. It might just be a multidimensional book. Now, let me ask you this, because some of our listeners may not know who you are. Tell us your story first. How did it, how did it all begin for you? With regard to the writing or my spiritual journey? Spiritual journey. Okay. Um, I was blessed with a mother who was very generous and allowing. When, and so when I was very young, uh, I started to have contact with the other side of the veil, we'll say. And I used to talk about these little blue beings that used to come and speak to me. And most parents would dismiss that with children, but my mother paid attention. And one day I walked into the kitchen and told her that (laughs) I was from another universe. I was four. And bearing in mind that that was in the 50s, that that was a common conversation at the time. I mean, a four-year-old saying that now, so many places they could pick that up. But back then, it wasn't. So she said, where are you from? And I said, you're not ready to know that yet, but I'll get back to you when, in another moment when we're both ready to talk about it. (laughs) I walked out of the kitchen. And so I have to say that I, I really had contact as a child, but not in the classic UFO contactee, abductee sense. I had contact with consciousness from another dimension and I believe that they presented themselves to me as little creatures or little beings because that's what a child could relate to and then all through my life I've had incredible guidance with um, beings from other dimensions but it really exploded in 1996 when I went into my first crop circle which was the famous the incredible Julia set crop circle at Stonehenge now, in that instance, I was in England attending a uh, color therapy work. Uh, actually, it was a college. And I dreamt that I was flying over Stonehenge. I saw this gigantic spiral next to it in a field. And in the dream, I heard a voice say, pay attention. This is a lock-on point for interdimensional consciousness. I woke up. I scribbled out what this looked like. But I still, at that time, didn't really understand what crop circles were. I wasn't really involved in that at all. And uh, lo and behold, I went to a um, bookstore in Glastonbury the weekend that we had free, and there's the exact same image on the wall. I said to the woman, what is this? What is this? And that led to her saying, 
it's the latest crop circle. Obviously, you're called to it. And I got into it. And when that happened, I lost consciousness for two and a half hours. The famous lost time syndrome. Mm -hmm. After which I uh, began bringing through these messages from the Syrian High Council. And I want to say that it's very important for me to um, highlight the fact that I didn't want to use my psychic skills in that way. I wasn't crazy about being an automatic writer or a medium. That's not the way I was working because I was largely working as a healer. But it kept coming. It kept coming book after book after book. And so that's how it all really catapulted into the stratosphere of my life. Now, we're going to be discussing crop circles throughout the interview as well, because it seems almost, you know, I've had this conversation with Colin Andrews, and, you know, it's always the the wondering, why is this happening? Why is it no more overt? And is it because somebody's holding this knowledge and it's given us riddles? Is this, Is that what's happening? Well, that's a very interesting observation to see if it can maybe the consciousness that's bringing them in can tweak the human collective. Right. Well, certainly a possibility. I, I believe that it is a precursor to uh, total connection, total um, arrival, if you will. And that we were given these symbols to start using, to start thinking in multidimensional terminology. And uh, always, what is the best way to communicate intelligence? Let's say that language is going to be a barrier. It, it certainly is on our planet. One would assume it's going to be a barrier with alien beings. But the one, the one common thread of all conscious beings is the understanding of ratio, vibration, all of the things that are present in sacred geometry, right? Exactly. So if you, if you want to communicate intelligence to another species – the, the, the one way you can be sure is geometry, number, ratio. And that is what we find in the crop circles. Now, there are some, some silly ones that we can really dismiss as being man-made. Yeah, like, Doug and Dave. Yeah, <laughs> Doug and Dave. When you look at the situation that, you know, my first experience was probably the most important crop circle in history, and that was the Julius set, 151 circles coming down we, we know for sure that they came down in the time expanse of maybe one hour during the day at the at, across from Stonehenge, the most frequented sacred site in England in the most busy time. It was it was July, the most busy tourist season. This thing comes down in the middle of the day, 151 circles in perfect Fibonacci sequence, which for anyone who doesn't understand, it has to do with the ratio of growth on the in many different uh, earth biological forms, and it, it also is a reflection of the golden mean. So I don't want to try to get into the details of all of that, but I'm sure most of the people that listen to you understand what that means. Um, and please it's, do it's if, a if very you science please, mathematical structure. Please do if you want to, because this is probably one of the most most fascinating things to me when I discovered the Fibonacci sequence, the golden mean, and I saw my hand. And I saw a, a, a seashell, I see a tree, I see exactly. it everywhere in the universe. Yeah, and it really, it, it really lends one to think, I guess there is a divine creator here. Because everything, so many things have this growth cycle embedded in them. Flowers, leaves, uh, many animals, the human hand, 
And that is one, if you take, let's say, if you're, how to say this, if your first digit in your finger is one inch, the combination of the next the digit, including that, will be 1.618 of the first. This is the growth frequency. Then the next, the three digits, oh, will be 1.61, sorry, 1.618 of that. And that, am I being clear? Because I'm not, it's hard to explain sacred geometry. Well, I think the easiest way to say it, it would be, you know, the, the Fibonacci sequence, one plus one is two, then two plus one is three, then five, then eight, and it goes on and on. Yes. And that is described as 1.618 in platonic terms. Right. So uh, when you look at a field and all of these pr- incredible circles, I mean, 151 circles, and they're in Fibonacci sequence, and they came down in an hour. And we know that they came down in an hour because we have reports from a crop uh, – sorry, it wasn't a crop plane. It was a, tour, uh, uh, a tourist plane, and he flew over the field, which he did every day, <clears throat> going over Stonehenge. He had a, he had a client in the – uh, plane taking pictures. There was nothing in the field. They flew over Stonehenge. She was taking pictures of, of Stonehenge. And then something like an hour and a half later, he was coming back and he saw this gigantic, breathtaking spiral in the field. And he, he, was said, he said he almost crashed the plane. He was shocked to see. There was no question that this this can't be explained as a bunch of guys going to the field with planks and trying to imitate this extraordinary form, this extraordinary mathematical form. So uh, that is really an exceptional moment in one's life, you can imagine. And in that crop circle, I saw plasma balls. I saw men in black, which was not pleasant, actually. There was so much going on, and there were people from all over the world. There were there were Tibetan lamas in there. There were Native American uh, peace, uh, sorry, medicine men, uh, Japanese Shinto priests. Something big was happening that at that moment, and I think it was a moment when the crop circle phenomenon took a whole new turn of intensity and complexity. Who is creating the crop circles and what do you think the real, we just speculated at the beginning of the interview, but who is creating them and for what reason? I understand the crop circles to be a, communi- a te- let's say, communication that is multidimensional in nature and that the sender would most likely be either uh, some sort of alien life form that is a three-dimensional being or a higher form of consciousness that knows how to create vibrational, um, has to direct, let's say, vibration as a representation of mind, of consciousness, and it works with the earth energies and most likely with human consciousness. Now, it's interesting that they come down in Wilshire predominantly there. I mean, we know that there are the occasional ones in other countries, but I'm never impressed with them. But the ones in Wilshire are... Uh, That's where, let's say, 85% of them come down. And what's interesting is that there is a very, there's a water shelf under the earth there, very high. And so when I asked my sources, 
uh, what, how this was happening. I was told that the, the water was drawing the, <laughs> it's an interesting concept, that this message or this communication was being sent into the earth, this design, and then the water under the earth shelf in that region of the world was pulling it in magnetically. And now that's a very exciting idea. So in other words, the electric male, if you will, if, if you're going to use that kind of term, the electric concept of pushing this message down onto the field and Earth's own emotional body, which of course is the water, uh, pulling it in, and that this dynamic is part of how this occurs. Why do you think that the preponderance of crop circles is happening in wheelchair? There are so many sacred ley lines. First of all, the ley lines in wheelchair are unbelievable. Um, there are many ancient relics, many, many ancient, uh, let's say, mounds. There, it's just a very sacred place. And it has what uh, I've referred to as triangulation. This is where predominantly they land between you've got Ava Berry Circle, you've got Stonehenge, and you've got uh, the Tor in Glastonbury. That forms a triangle. And most of them come down in that, within that region. So, of course, what do we know about these sacred sites? Well, for starters, the Tor, which is at the top of a mound, uh, was built, I don't know how many centuries ago, but it, as we all know, uh, often sacred buildings or churches or, or temples are built on already sacred ground. And the, the tours, the, the, the mound that the tour is sitting on has been described as an entrance into Agartha, the inner earth. It has been described as an uh, alien civilization. There's something very mystical going on in that place, which, of course, draws people uh, throughout time. And it, of course, is the ancient Avalon of Arthur days and Merlin. How did you make a connection with Atlantis after this crop circle sighting? Well, I have had memory of Atlantis since I was young. I've seen myself over, over, over again in dreams as a young boy who is looking at, in fact, if you look at the cover of Atlantis Rising, do you have it in front of you? Of course, there's a, a grown person and a smaller person on the right. Yes. Yes. And that smaller person, I describe in the opening, the first page of the book, that I'm looking at this spiral. It's a spiral of orichalcum, which was a known ore in um, Atlantis. And upon it sits a, go a great sphere of crystal. And within the crystal, there's a little gold filament. And I'm being instructed by the person who's holding my hand that this is how energy is produced. The mind sends in thought to the spiral. The, the, the thought travels up into the sphere and uh, by, by a process very similar to electric lighting and the filament there, this thought is transmuted, transformed into energy. And I was instructed that this is how Atlantis uh, used energy and created the power source for the entire continent. No. <laughs> so... I was involved with that uh, at a very young age, and I've been in pursuit of understanding that all my life, because I have no doubt in my mind that Atlantis 
was not a fantasy. It was not Plato's utopia. It was a very real civilization. And um, I think also that it was, instead of being an island, I believe that Atlantis was a continent that stretched from as far north as Iceland all the way down to South America. Wow, that big. Yeah. So if you look at the North, the, the North Atlantic Ridge under the ocean, it's a mountain chain that goes, that actually is that, that enormous length. And I believe that that was part of Atlantis. Well, look at Bimini Road. Why is exactly. it that, that the you know, governments and researchers haven't given it the, the, the serious credit that it deserves? Because that would require rewriting history. Hmm. And there are a lot of interests in not touching reality, not touching truth. We're not really being allowed to know the truth of our history because it would change the power structure on this planet. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Sam Osmogonovich in Bosnia. Well, Samir, Dr. Samir Osmogonovich, of course, yes. The Bosnia oh, Pyramid. Okay. Well, he told me when I interviewed him that the when he, dis when he really got opened up the the first pyramid and really, I mean, there was no question anymore about it. Uh, some big kahunas came from Egypt, uh, one of the Egyptology experts, and he admitted that it really looked like this was, this was older than the Great Pyramid. And Sam said that this man was then fired when he went back to Egypt because that upsets the whole apple cart. Of course. So... I think that the reason, um, to answer to your question, that these secrets are still being withheld is because the power structure on this planet does not want us to know the truth. And that's exactly what we're going to be. This, well, I think that once you know the truth, you'll really know who will know who we are, where we came from, where we're going. But if you control the past, you control the future. And if, you control, and if you control the present, you control the past. But, you know, I have to ask you, I'm going to be jumping around because after writing this book, you wrote many others. But the serpent, I see on the circle here on the cover of your book, there's a, I see a serpent there. And if we look at history, one of the common denominators of, of history is the you know gold, slavery, and the feathered serpent. But here in the Western world, at least, we seem to demonize a snake when it was venerated before. Why is that, Patricia? Yes, it's true. In fact, I've, I've received criticism about that because people have said, am I working for the other side? And the truth is that um, every possible tool that they, let's say the dark forces can use against light workers, they will use. So a lot of our ancient symbols have been demonized to create fear around them so that we're disempowered when we work with them or when, when we uh, incorporate them in our, our work, our spirit work. And it's kind of ridiculous because, first of all, the, the snake is venerated in so many uh, ancient wisdom texts. Right. And it represents vibration. The Egyptians show, when they want to show energy and vibration, it's the snake. Because the way the snake moves, the waving movements of the snake uh, represent how energy moves. And that's what it is. And that's why it's included in, in the cover of Atlantis, because it is a conductor of energy in, within that sphere. But every effort is made to make us afraid, because when you've got a, a people in, afraid, you've, you control them. 
And by the way, back to the, the former question, one of the reasons why Atlantis is being kept from us is because they had free energy, right? Exactly. So if we we don't, the, the powers that be with this oil obsession and the abuse of the planet because of it do not want us to have free energy, period. Now, you say we're behaving as the last generation of Atlantis did. What do you mean by that? The last generation of Atlantis, in my understanding, abused their technology in a very dire way. And I'd like to describe that. According to the book and according to the source that I hear and, and receive, at that point in civilization, the priesthood, the dark priesthood, the power structure had learned how to uh, manipulate people with mind manipulation technology, which was um, having them, let's call it in prayer, a sort of obedience training where they were sending that energy into the spheres as I described at the beginning of our conversation. And this energy was being manipulated and abused, as were many other technological developments in Atlantis, because they, had, they were at a point of technology where they were doing all kinds of genetic uh, manipulation and tests and abuses of their power. Let's remember one thing. Our technology is based on silicon the essence of crystals. So when we talk about Atlantis and the Society of Atlantis and their use of crystals, which is a kind of a common understanding of that civilization, I like to remind people that they had the technology that we have now, perhaps in a different form. Perhaps they didn't need to build the plastic-cased Apple computers like we do. But our, <laughs> right. our, our computers are based on crystal. So... In answer to your question, we are once again at that point. We are drugged by the technology. It's runaway uh, abuse of technology, abuse of the essence of creation. The most important thing that's wrong right now, as far as I can understand, is the alteration of DNA. This is something that is is really portends of, of real crisis on this planet. And we know that every kind of tests and laboratory fiasco, fantasies of scientists, mixing chromosomes, missing DNA with um, animal DNA, plant DNA, of course, the GMO, the wonderful GMO disaster on this planet. And I think that that is a very serious aspect of our crisis on the, on the earth right now. So when we say Frankenfood, you really mean it? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about, uh, let's say, putting spider venom into strawberries, was that the one? It's either, I can't remember which insect is being put into strawberries to make them stay red longer, to sell sell them longer, Mm -hmm. longer shelf life. That is very dangerous. And this is something that, you know, the Atlanteans allegedly did, the chimeras, the, the, the genetic tinkering, the mutations. You know, we hear this in people who, who talk about, you know, even the name of my company, Manticore, the Minotaurs. We hear that this is all science fiction, when in fact it could have been possible in the past. Do you think this was possible in the past? 
Absolutely. And if you look at the Egyptian structure of their gods, uh, the the bird head, the falcon head of Horus, uh, I don't really think that necessarily they were intending that they were talking about the energy of that animal totem as the essence of the god. I think it's very possible that they were actually mutations of DNA, spliced DNA, and um, tests that, that ended up developing that kind of form. I mean, this is really happening in laboratories. They are mixing different kinds of species. And this is happening underground. I've heard that in Saudi Arabia, this is taking place too. And I said this years ago. You can go back to many of the shows I've done. And gosh, I, I just can't even think that this could be happening in the future. But I said, you watch in the future when the economy collapses or is getting ready to collapse and people continue to demand a higher wage, businesses will demand uh, robotics. And what are we seeing these days? I saw the headlines yesterday that there will be riots because a lot of people are going to be let go. And I don't mean to mix all of this with what we're trying to say, but I think it's connected. Robotics, McDonald's in Phoenix, for example, they're testing one McDonald's where only robots will be working there. But take that beyond, take that beyond. I think that slavery was never really abolished. If we have the capability of creating, say, a human being that's 98% human and perhaps 2% another another species, well, under the law, that entity or that being is not really human. Therefore, we could create a slave species. Do you think the Atlanteans did that too? And we seem to probably be repeating that in the future. I think in the fall of Atlantis, they had they had achieved that that mentality because in it, inevitably, with runaway technology, it's inevitable um, unless you've got a, a seriously enlightened civilization that there will be abuse of the technology. And it, I believe that Atlantis had many eras, and that the last era was very dark. And as far as your comment about the uh, the robots. This is, I agree with you completely, it is definitely relevant, and it's very clear that the scientists, or let's say the government-backed scientific teams, greatest desire, greatest desire, besides creating biological warfare, is the creation of a sentient robot. That's what they want, that's what they're working on. So you think transhumanism, singularity... As uh, Ray Kurzweil predicts that will happen in the year 2020, will be a mixture of biocomputers. Humans will be, I mean, we're so attached right now to, to look at the youth. If you take away their gadgets, depression ensues. I know. I've even heard that, that, that they're, they're suicidal because they lose their, yes. their privilege to It's very alarming. And I, you know, I hate, sometimes I feel like I'm an old fuddy duddy because. <laughs> I actually remember before we had computers. Oh, yes. And I, when I look at people, the other day I was in a restaurant and this couple was out to dinner. And they were sitting there, both of them on their phones. They, they didn't talk to each other. They didn't look at each other. And I thought, isn't this already the development of a robotic species? What's the difference? We're biological robots versus um Technology robots that that acquire intelligence, human in, or human emotion. What's the difference? We're becoming unemotional, incapable of communication. I see. I see that as robotism. 
And I think the short attention span that people are developing, even I, I will admit, sometimes I can't stay still. I have to browse different websites at the same time. I have to be watching TV in different TVs, if I ever do, because I hardly watch TV. But I think it's because all this electronic world is really changing the way our wiring in our brains is. We're being disconnected from the planet. And this is why I conducted a show the other day with Clint Ober about earthing. And I cannot tell you how important it is to connect ourselves with the ground and take our rubber shoes off and connect. And you'll feel so much better. I think that's another part too. It's so important. I personally, I live in the country outside of Rome. My backyard is a forest. In the morning I wake up, I hear the bird song. And I'm paying attention all the time. I'm, I'm very involved with nature. And it, it really soothes my soul to hear the music of the earth. I'm all about the music of the earth, the music of the oceans, and how I love this planet. And so I have very little, as much as possible, very little uh, involvement with technology. I do not own a television. Well, that's not true. I own a television, but I only use it for watching DVDs, selected I have a cell phone, but it's rarely on. And so people say, what is the point of you having a cell phone if we can't reach you? I say, ah, maybe that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to be reachable 24-7. What happened to privacy? I remember the time when there was no phone in my house. So, you know, I know the time before technology. Now, so the end of Atlantis, was it man-made, Patricia? I believe it was. Now, there, of course, there are all kinds of opinions about what happened, but I believe that the abuse of the technology brought the planet down. It just brought Atlantis down. They were doing, let's remember that we we believe that we are the only civilized, I use the term loosely, um, society throughout history. And when we have these ooh parts, like the Vimini uh, craft used in India, uh, these craft were described as uh, they, they were they were saucers. You mean the Vimanas? Yeah, they were ships. They were flying, right? Yes, yes. Okay, and there, you know, there is also in the Bhagavad Gita there is a description of nuclear explosion. So <laughs> it's not to say that this wasn't already highly developed in those in those ancient times, and I I think that. With that kind of knowledge of technology, any form of weaponry was definitely accessible. And I believe that at some point that dark control on the civilization brought brought it down. And, you know, interestingly enough, and this is why I make the paragon with now, look at fracking. We are really making this planet unstable. It's already a living being, so it has its own ebb and flow but the Earth's crust is becoming more and more unstable every day with this fracking occurring all over the planet. You know, and I that's think, I think some, sometimes it takes an exterior influence uh, in order to corrupt a person or a society. Obviously, if Atlantis existed from 10,000 BC to 27, what is it, 27,000 to 10,000 BC, obviously they must have conquered spiritualism and, 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 and technology, but if they ended, maybe technology advanced faster than spirituality. At the same time, did an exterior force 
influence Atlantis and it exacerbated their demise? Well, that's a question that's going to drive us all crazy because we <laughs> we want to know that, just like we want to know if there's intervention from an exterior uh, civilization, an alien force right now. And I think many of us agree that there are uh, alien bases on this planet. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't use the word believe, but uh, something tells me that if this is a big universe and one of the most unexplored areas of the world is under the oceans, and we have plenty of places around the world, in mountains, where they're seen all the time. So I wouldn't doubt it at all. Yeah, and there's no reason to doubt that this civilization or this um, alien species was already visiting the planet 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. That's right. That's right. And let me ask you, since you were a child, you were scared of uh, bridges and fascinated with crystals. Why is that? I think that the terror, it wasn't even fear, it was terror. To go over a bridge was a big ordeal with my family. They had to put a blanket over my head. And it couldn't be one driver. There had to be uh, somebody else driving and somebody sitting with me in the back because of the phobic reactions. And it's not like my personality. I don't have phobias about anything else. Um, I would just visualize the, the the bridge going under the water. I think I was there when that occurred, when Atlantis went down. And interesting, many people write to me and say they also have this terror of bridges. It's really strange, isn't it? Well, very strange. And you know, I've heard that from a lot of people. And I also, for example, I am claustrophobic. And I don't know why. I have asked my parents, hey, did you ever leave me in a room by myself or what have you? No, no, never. And, and really, I cannot just pinpoint as to why when I get into an elevator, I immediately start sweating. And sometimes, you see, the elevator gets to its destination. It takes about 10 seconds before the door opens. So maybe something happened. If there's really a past life, maybe something happened in the past. But you were hypnotically, hypnotically regressed at one point. What did you find, and can you describe Atlantis and how life was then. Yes. Can I just go back to what you said about the elevator, which I find fascinating? Sure. That could be, a, you know, there, many things could have happened. For example, maybe you had, uh, your mother had difficulty birthing you. C-sections, all of us. So no, yeah. no trouble there. Okay, no trouble there. Or in the book uh, Where Pharaohs Dwell, I, I was buried alive. And that was a memory that came through in your question about the, the regression. I remembered being buried alive. I was, I, it was so severe when I had the regression that the um, hypnotherapist had to pull me out because he thought I was going to actually die in the session. I couldn't breathe. I was hyperventilating and just going berserk. So being a person who does believe in past lives and the whole reincarnational process, uh, it doesn't I, I, in your case, usually I believe that a phobia that can't be identified with a moment in life that caused the crisis very often is a reflection of a past life, a traumatic past life event. It's interesting you said that about being buried alive because sometimes you see on the internet they have these pranks where people are buried as a prank. And I can't even watch 10 seconds of that because I get the anxiety of, of being there. So, wow, maybe there's a connection there. As a prank? Yes, yes. Sometimes, you know, you see pr pranks on the internet where, you know, somebody is uh, 
drunk, for example, and they take that person, they put him in a in a coffin, and they start burying him as a prank. I mean, this is what pranks are these days, folks. It's unbelievable. So I see that and I think, you know, I can't even watch 10 seconds of that because I, I feel what it would be for me to be inside of that casket. That's unthinkable to me. What, what have we come to when this is a form of entertainment? They're pushing the envelope too, too far. But what happened then when you were hypnotically uh, regressed? Well, there were two separate aspects to the regression. And the one I was, uh, I went to this memory of Egypt and I relived this aspect of being buried alive. And that was very powerful. And then the Atlantean memory was very clear. I just, I remembered so much about Actually, I've had more than one life in Atlantis. And the information about the skulls, the crystal skulls, came forward. And that is very exciting because, and that, in fact, that's an important part of the book, the Crystal Skull Committee, which ties in with the Mayan um, legend that there were 12 ancient crystal skulls that would be reunited sometime at this time in this current time of change. And so I received all of, I saw and received a lot of information about how these skulls were, were given to the Atlanteans by another, an alien force. They were made manifest in that society. And this was the, the great computer network. Isn't that exciting thought? Almost like the web. Exactly. A multidimensional computer network. And as you know, it sounds far out when you, when you don't have all the pieces together, but why? Why is it hard to believe that the exact same structure, the basic structure of our technology, which is crystal silicate, was utilized in Atlantis uh, as a computer, a gigantic computer, uh, computer net network, utilizing their ability to connect psychically with the substance of crystal and use the these 12 skulls in that way. And the information that I also received was that when the 12 were brought together, a 13 master skull appeared in some sort of other dimension, other, other context. And it's very interesting because we've got that 12 aspect to so many things, 12 apostles and Jesus, yeah. uh, 12, I, I, I just, I'm trying to think right at the moment. 12 it, months, 12 months, uh, 12, 12 months, exactly. yards, 12 inches. 12 is a big, big number. And the 13th appears. Jesus appears with the 12 apostles united. I believe that this, this number, again, as we spoke about at the beginning, that number is a reflection of an important sacred message. I don't think it's haphazard that Jesus had 12 apostles. And in, it directly relates to this Atlantean theme that there were 12 crystal skulls and that when they were brought together, a 13th would appear. Now, when we think of Atlantis and its demise, I, I suspect that if it existed, that some survivors, there were some survivors. Where there survivors, and if they were, there were, where did they go? I believe that... Many of the seers in the priesthood knew that this was coming. And according to legend, the Mayans believe that they don't necessarily um, relate the crystal skulls necessarily to Atlantis. But I, my understanding is that 
the 12, each crystal skull was protected by a keeper. And that at a certain time when they knew, when they could, when they sensed and could see the demise of Atlantis, they were taken to different locations around the planet for protection. So a lot of them, a lot of them fleed in time. And the locations were the Tibetan, obviously the Himalayas, um, the most likely the, the mountain ranges were important places to go. And I think that the Atlantans had access to all of these locations because if you put a continent in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and instead of this idea that it's some island in Greece, if you, if you imagine a continent that stretches from Iceland down to South America, you can understand that access to these other continents was a whole different picture than what we, we understand it to be now. And that many of them fled before the, the disaster, especially the keepers of the crystal skulls, because it was foreseen that they would be reunited somewhere in time at this time when Atlantis is happening again. But I really, truly understand that it's not going to happen this time. The dark force is not going to win. When I think of a pyramid, for some reason, I, I cannot help but connect it to Atlantis. Is there a connection between pyramids and Atlantis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a question in my mind, at least, I think the pyramid structures were also, are also connections to Atlantean, a benevolent, an, sorry, an alien benevolent civilization, or more than one, who built these pyramids, helped the evolved civilizations on earth, build them for specific purposes. You know, in Egypt, have you been there, Mel? No, I'm not. I've been pretty much everywhere, but I haven't been to Egypt. Oh, my. <laughs> Must go. In Egypt, I recently have had the privilege of going into the Serapium, which is located at Saqqara, the Step Pyramid. And it only is recently open, I think, about six months. So what is the Serapium? They call it an underground tomb burial site, which is ridiculous. When you go into the Serapium, there are all of these gigantic granite boxes that would fit many bodies. The, the, the pharaohs would never do this. They, they, their tombs were sacred. They were absolutely uh, filled with hieroglyphs and gifts for the gods and the journey through the duat. Rather, in the Serapium, there are these gigantic granite boxes that, that makes no sense what their purpose is. In fact, there's one humongous granite slab shaped like a box, not a coffin, um, and it has no it's, – it's just there – and when I was in there, I said, oh, this is a power station. I could imagine and see that some of these boxes were filled with water. Some of them were used to create some other sort of substance. And they were, they were part of an electromagnetic system that most likely powered the pyramid. It is really a remarkable discovery. And I've learned that these big boxes are also at strategic points on the Giza Plateau around the pyramid, off the tourist trail, but they're there. I really, really 
see and I'm learning that these were part of a huge power structure, energy structure, and again, free energy. I was going to ask you, ask you what is or was the purpose of the pyramids? And I say was because I think they have been deactivated on purpose. Would you agree? Absolutely. No question in my mind. Back, and I'll get back to that question in a minute. Some years ago, I went to Chichen Itza. And the guide that was uh, helping me with my group was wearing a NASA T-shirt. So always the Uh curious seeker. I said to him, sorry, ¿Dónde estás (laughs) your shirt? What's the point of your shirt? How did you get a NASA T-shirt? And he told me that um, several months earlier. Because I want to misinform you. So that's why I'm wearing the shirt. No, he, he not exactly. Just he, kidding. <laughs> he was there when the NASA came in with all of these uh, vans with these sophisticated devices on top, tracking devices, satellite dishes, whatever. And then that was all sealed off. And George W. Bush and Vincente Fox came in. They had a very ceremonial walk up to the top of the pyramid. They went in, they were in there for an hour, they came out, and that was the last time anybody was allowed inside the pyramid. That's exactly right. And last year I went to Chichen Itza and I asked the question, because I remember years ago when I lived in Mexico City in 92, 94, you could go up. And ever since that event happened, it's been sealed. And allegedly it's to avoid people from destroying the, the patrimonial you know, property of humanity. I don't think so. And you don't either. I think they did something in there, some kind of a ritual, and shut down the energy. Or, well, without getting too crazy, um, directed it into a direction that uh, we don't want to go. Why would NASA be there in the first place? Good question. Who does NASA really work for and what are they really doing? Oh, they're in my opinion, they're just window dressing. I think they're a branch of the Department of Defense. And they've been there since the inception to misinform the population and give us the illusion of us searching for answers in the cosmos, uh, when in reality is just window dressing. Yeah, when in reality, most likely they're already uh, bases on the moon and Mars, right. and we, we keep going through this silliness about uh, eventually migrating. But of course, and in my books, clearly say that these bases have been there long ago they're already ready to go they've got you know the the pictures of mars that we see are so ludicrous with the little red overtone if you dial down the light the color the red and you put it back oh patricia you're still there interesting how she gets disconnected that they oh you know when you were saying are you there uh, yeah i am but we got disconnected for a few seconds about 10 seconds when you were, yeah, you, this was getting interesting. Isn't that interesting? This always happens when I do interviews, when I talk about these things. Yes. <laughs> so take it from there. You said that, you know, we've already been there. It's, uh, I have no doubt that there's a secret space program, at least. See, I've said it before. I don't believe. I either know or I don't. People tell me that we went to the moon. Well, that's what they tell me. Do I believe it? Absolutely not. I, I haven't been convinced yet. I, I wasn't there. I'll tell you, take your word for it. Uh, but with Mars, with other planets, 
I have seen with infrared goggles, and you probably have too, you have seen this triangular craft flying above us, and people send me videos all the time. So I have seen that. So something tells me they're either from somewhere else, which I doubt, or, oh, hold on. My recorder all of a sudden stopped. Give me one second. Okay. Are we experiencing interference? One second. One of my backup recorders just shut down all of a sudden. You think we're experiencing a little interference? You know what? I'm not even in the United States right now, so but that's irrelevant. They can they can monitor communication worldwide, but that's very strange. I lost communication in one of the backup recorders, <laughs> but that's okay. I first the line went down, then the recorder went down. Yeah, we're talking. We must be talking about highly sensitive information. And the battery was full, the battery I made sure was fully charged before we started the interview, which lasts about six seven hours, and it's gone in just. 40 minutes. Anyway, my train of thought all of a sudden got derailed because of this. What was I saying? Oh, the secret space program. Yeah. I I think it's it's up there. We just we are not told because if they have to admit that they have probably anti-gravitic equipment, that is just basically saying we don't need airplanes. We don't need tin cans anymore. We don't need fuel anymore. And this brings me to the next question. Tesla. Was there a connection? And I was I was not surprised to see that you mentioned Tesla because I expected it. And your book, was it, there's a connection. Is there a connection between Tesla and Atlantis? Yes. According to my book and the information I received, Tesla uh, was. <laughs> this is going to uh, rouse many people's opinions uh, who who have idolized Tesla and imagined him to be the great savior of civilization. But actually, he was playing with some very dangerous toys, and a lot of his wisdom was. Very dangerous stuff. And according to the Syrians, he was a walk-in in this life. And he was presidentus and he was known as Akanaset. Very uh, nefarious character. Abuse of technology. This really um, makes people uncomfortable because he's be such a cult worship of Tesla's technology. But then again, we always have the dark and light side of everything. So, so much of his genius was was amazingly powerful and, and potentially wonderful. But my understanding is that he abused that power. You think he abused that power? What about the fact that he wanted to, well, because, you know, as he said, if you want to learn the secrets of the universe, think in terms of frequency and vibration. And he wanted to really give electricity, to, free electricity to the planet. That's why we had all these, you know, all these uh, towers that he wanted to have. And he even had a problem. What was in the East, East Coast or in Colorado where an entire town was shut down because of his experiments? Yeah. The intention of, of Tesla will remain a mystery. We know that he had very big ego issues and that he was – very demoralized by being shut down by um, the powers. J.P. Morgan. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he also had a lot of strange uh, obsessions. He didn't like to be touched. He was a complex character. So I think that most likely there is a range of intention with this man because the genius was there and that uh, he came in with the capacity to blow up the planet. Let's not forget Tugunska. 
the the the. Oh, you mean Tung, Tung, Tunguska in Russia? Yeah, I believe that that was an a, 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 a not a meteorite, but I think it was a Tesla boo boo. But that's conjecture. And sticking with fact, what I would like to say is that what we know about Tesla is that he was a genius, right up there with Einstein, and that he had the power and the wisdom to bring free energy to the planet, but something went wrong. Whether or not uh, it was because he was suppressed by the powers that be because of obviously they didn't want to give us that, which is definitely an element, or whether his own distorted perception took him to another, a darker side remains a mystery. But I don't, I don't really believe that Tesla was, was the great hero that many people believe him to be. I think he had a dark side, and with that dark side comes the potential for the abuse of the energy. Well, it's always a double-edged sword. Even with a knife, you can cut an apple or you can kill somebody. That's exactly right. But the question everybody has, I have at least, with Atlantis, with if, in fact, they had such a modern society thousands of years ago. And there are remnants that are being found. You, you probably have heard of the Antikythera mechanism you've heard of uh, yes. of, of you know the, the back that battery some other things what happened to the knowledge well that's a very brilliant question and i think that first of all a lot of the wisdom of the earth the ancient world was burned in alexandria deliberately so imagine the texts that were in alexandria wisdom of of so many ancient civilizations gone forever. The, the Iraqi um, invasion and the immediate destruction of the tablets, the Sumerian tablets. Why did the U.S. military go directly into the museum and destroy so many things? Do you think that that was deliberate? I think it was. And I've also heard that a lot of the artifacts have returned to the museums, but they're in fact facsimiles. You've heard that too, probably. I've heard that too, and I also think that they're probably not true facsimiles. They're they're altered, because there's no question in my mind that the powers that be, we can leave that nebulous, do not want that the story that the story that is encoded in that ancient wisdom to be told to humanity. And so, as far as the ancient wisdom and the Atlantean technology, whatever, I don't think it was all lost. I think that at the basis of our computer technology is ancient wisdom of Atlantis and how crystal, how silicate was developed to to run the planet. But that a lot of the 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 overall wisdom, the uh, the Antikythera is an amazing structure. And I think a lot of that was deliberately lost. And of course, with the with the destruction of the civilization, a lot is was buried. But more and more things are coming to light. You know, it's uh, always I've been fascinated by crystals and the fact that they may hold the vibration of what happened ever since they were created at the beginning of time. But the question is how to access it. Almost like having a hard drive. A, an external hard drive and not knowing how to connect it to a computer that can understand the knowledge. But when I think of crystals, I think of, you probably have heard of the huge, gigantic crystals that are found in Ciudad Juarez, uh, in Mexico, in Juarez, Mexico. Hey. Und- Imagine if we could access what those incredible, gigantic structures can tell us. 
Well, yeah, I, I love your analogy of the computer hard drive because it's like it's there, but you don't know the password. Exactly. And how frustrating is that to know that the the wisdom of of the knowledge of how how much knowledge is contained in a teeny tiny itty bitty trip, chip, but you, without the password, can't get to it. And so, whether it's crystal skulls or or geodes or whatever. I agree. I believe that the the experience of Earth's growth, development, the sacred geometry of the planet, the wisdom of creation, uh, the history of the planet is all encoded in the crystals because they have memory. The question is how to access it. And there are psychics that can. Now, when I mentioned the survivors, I say this because, you know, we're told that Christopher Columbus came to the new world. I just think that he just opened the routes to Europe when there was he rediscovered, if you will. But we had pyramids in Mesoamerica. We have pyramids in Egypt. There's a lot of similarities. Not they're not precisely equal, but they're very similar, architecturally, engineering wise, and the people seem similar. If you look at not, I'm not talking about the the natives per se, the Mayas, the Aztecs, the Incas. But if you look at the people now in Mexico and Egypt, they're very similar. And in Spanish, Egipto, Egypt, Egipto rhymes with Mexico. Is there a correlation there? Yes. And I think that the idea that a continent, an Atlantean continent, uh, was in the middle of that ocean would render that all the more plausible because it makes access to Egypt, access to Mexico, um, and these similar structures being built as an as a as let's say in a migration of these people much more plausible and the mexican pyramids are very similar to the bosnian pyramids because now sam says there are five different pyramids there oh is that right in addition to the big bosnian pyramid yeah now he's uh, the last one i talked to him he said that they're unearthing four other pyramids and they're calling them Pyramid of the Moon, Pyramid of the Sun, etc., which is replicating the, the Mexican pyramids. So there is a similarity, and I think that there is a common knowledge that whether or not it was the Atlanteans that brought this wisdom to these different civilizations, or whether it was the Atlanteans guided by external intelligence, such as an alien force, uh, I'm not sure. But I do believe that the Atlanteans were everywhere on this planet because they were huge a civilization of high development that was mostly way beyond anything else that was happening on the earth and that there was support from aliens in the development of the technology and the development of the pyramids and uh, free energy on the planet and all of these things we had visitation way way back and of course we see that in the scripture we see that in the um the sculptures, the famous uh, coffin lid of uh, Pakal Votan, where he's sitting there. Nobody can deny that this man is sitting inside a craft. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes, yes. The one that, he, yeah, almost like he's flying it. Yeah. Well, I had had the privilege of going into that pier, that, that uh, tomb, which was closed. It's closed off. You can't go in. But for some reason, which is, I'm very blessed being able to open the doors. The guardian of, of that site, when I went to see her, she said, I read your book, Atlantis Rising. I was flabbergasted. Oh, no. wow. Yeah, I said, what? She said, I, 
I'm not supposed to say what I'm about to say, but are you here to go inside the tomb of Bacal? And I said, I would like that. She said, I'm going to do this, but it's never going to be on the record. Well, hold it. Hold it right there, because this is really too interesting. And we have to separate both segments. We have to take one and only break. A little cliffhanger there. You're going to tell us what you found behind that door, right? Absolutely. Oh, great. And also, let me say this. You say that Atlantis reached such a state of disharmony that it short-circuited the energy networks of the planet and life was nearly nearly obliterated at many corners of the Earth. Now, we think of HARP these days. We think of how, and I sound like a broken record when I say this, that the tuning frequency changed from 432 hertz to A440 hertz. I want to take your, get your take on that too, but I'm so, so fascinated by our conversation and what you're going to tell us about what you found behind Pakal's door. Patricia, how can people buy Atlantis Rising on all your other books? They're pretty much, obviously, the bookstores uh, stock when they've got orders these days. So they're always, uh, you can always order my books if your bookstore does not have them. And of course, they're all available on the internet, especially Amazon and all of the other uh, networks that sell books. And ebooks, copies are also available. Excellent. And your website, patriciacorey.com, C O R I.com, correct? Correct. Excellent. We have a link on our website. Folks, don't go anywhere. A very fascinating interview with Patricia Corey, all the way from the outskirts of Rome, Italy. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.